0: This podcast is brought to you by Calsec, the creator of DuraShield Food Protection Blends, an all-new naturally-sourced food safety alternative that packs the power of antioxidants and antimicrobials into one. To learn more about DuraShield and other naturally-sourced food ingredients crafted by Calcic, including colors and taste and sensory solutions, visit calseccom podcast. For MePoultry.com, I'm Erica Schaefer, Digital Media Senior Editor. Our guest this week is Chef Eric Neal. He and his wife Amanda Neal own and operate Main Street Meats in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Chef Neal says that Main Street Meats began as a kernel of an idea that already existed. The award-winning chef's culinary career spans 25 years. Although he attended the University of Texas at Austin to study psychology with a minor in business, food has always been his passion. He attended Johnson and Wales Culinary School in Vail, Colorado. And in 2005, after working in professional kitchens, He and Amanda, both in their 20s, opened Easy Bistro and Bar in downtown Chattanooga. In 2014, the Neals took over Main Street Meats. Eric says, tongue firmly in cheek, that at age 35, he needed a new challenge that would push him out of his comfort zone. But he also believed in the business. He says it was the one great chance for Chattanooga to have a local butcher. But how could he and his team of artisan butchers use old-school techniques to successfully run a combination contemporary butcher shop and restaurant to become Chattanooga's neighborhood butcher shop? In this episode of the Meat and Poultry podcast, Chef Neil explains how he and the Main Street Meats team did just that and why whole animal butchery is key to the shop's current success and its future as a fixture in more neighborhoods across the Southeast. Main Street Meats. How how did that vision come about? Um, Because you've been in the industry for a while.
1: I have. Yeah, I've been been doing this for 25 years or so at this point. Main Street came to me as a... Uh, kind of a kernel of an idea that already existed. Uh, so some some guys had gotten together uh, before me to start a butcher shop uh, with the idea of being a, a locally owned, locally sourced only whole animal butchery. Um, and they were they were doing a good job, but struggling through the sort of economics of trying to sell enough food to make a business work, uh, and that being you know raw and cooked food. And so I got involved as a consultant uh, for a brief spell and really, you know, knew about this place and had had, a, had an affinity for it already, uh, but really saw the potential for it. And I honestly thought that this was the one great chance for Chattanooga to have a local butcher. Uh, and I wanted to be involved in it for a couple of reasons. One, I, I thought the, the brand and, you know, what was there was really um, well accepted by the community already. And it was totally different than anything I'd ever done before. So me being in my mid-30s and needing a challenge uh, and something to try to push me away from my comfort zone, you know, I really sort of dove headlong into it. And, you know, the rest is, as they say, it's history, but, you know, it was a, a long and interesting slog to figure out how to run a quasi-modern butcher shop with old school techniques and the modern South.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So talk about that, um, because you can't just do one thing anymore. It seems like you have to have a, it seems like you have to to have a little bit more to bring people through the door. So talk about how that evolved and that,
1: oh. that slog. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the, the nostalgia of the old southern butcher, and this I think this goes to the country as well. Just the the neighborhood butcher. Let's call it the neighborhood butcher, was a you know small shop where a guy's making, you know, sausages and salami and cuts of uh, beef and pork and chicken and you name it, and you know his mm-hmm. name, and you know they walk in, you know, you walk in and you pick something up and you and you take it and you go. Um, the the problem is that the economics of that are terrible. Um, now you you cannot there is no possible way to generate enough revenue and enough margin to pay for any, any meaningful, you know, amount of staff or rent or anything like that. So, you know, I kind of joke that the, you know, all the old neighborhood butchers went out of business for a reason. Um, And it wasn't that they didn't want like doing what they do or did or weren't good at it. It's just because the economics of it suck.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, so what we have now, I'm sorry, my dogs are barking in the background. <laughs> um, what we have now are, are these hybrid models. And that's exactly what Main Street Meats is. It's a hybrid model. So we have a restaurant attached to a butcher shop. And, you know, we're USDA inspected butcher shop. We, we make our own, you know, we bring in whole animals. We break them down. We have our own retail side. Uh, but we also have a restaurant and bar attached to it. And mm-hmm. it's the restaurant and bar that really makes the butcher shop financially okay uh because the just the, just i was saying just selling a retail case doesn't work mm-hmm. and you know it's the same way in a, in a grocery store or whole foods i mean whole foods can't sell you know support a butchery without selling you know herbal supplements and stuff like that <laughs> yeah which is kind of sad when you
0: think about it because you know those little shops you. really had a special place in our in our history in our communities Oh, yeah. um, and it did bring us a lot closer to our food than what we're what we have now, I think.
1: Oh, yeah, it, it, it was, you know, that neighborhood tie that bound each other or bound us together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it went away. And, and, and I think Main Street, you know, in its own unique little way has, has attempted to recreate that. Um, and, and, and I think has done a good job of it. And I'm really proud of it. But, you know, it has to be a restaurant. Uh, you know, or you see models where it's like a a bakery and a butcher shop at the same time, because Mm -hmm. you you just can't make it on the margin in the meat business alone.
0: So when, when you started trying to figure out how to make this work, what did you need? You know, you think about the old time butchers, maybe, you know, they had a slicer they had the sausage stuffer I mean what did you need in terms of equipment and space to totally kit this out in addition to having
1: a restaurant space that's the other thing about uh, butcheries that is very interesting is that you know they are very intensive on the equipment and it is very specialized and very expensive equipment um and and so you know jumping into um into the, butch- the existing butcher shop that I jumped into, there was a lot of equipment there. And what I found was that, you know, some of the stuff we had was great and some of the stuff was old and needed to be replaced. And so I've spent the better part of the last eight years rehabbing this butcher shops piece by piece. And, you know, it, when each, you know, you're talking about um, bandsaws and, and big giant meat grinders that are 20, $25,000 a pop, you know, smokers that run 70, 80 grand. You know, it, it is, it is a very heavily, you know, capital intensive project. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had to take our time and do it and do it as best we could. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy we've done it. And we're finally kind of on the other side of rehabbing this, this old shop. Uh, and with the equipment we have now, we're able to do so much more than we were before.
0: So when all was said and done, how much space are you taking up in your, your current location?
1: So the, the neat thing about MSM is it's very tiny. It's 2,600 square feet and half of the space roughly is dedicated to the butchery and the retail counter. And half of it is dedicated to the kitchen uh, and the dining room and the bar. Um, and, you know, from a revenue point of view, it's kind of, it doesn't make any sense from a business point of view because the butchery probably generates 20% of our sales in the restaurant 80, but the restaurant works because the butchery does what it does. Uh, so it's, you know, if you're looking at it on paper, when I talk to, you know, friends in the restaurant business, they look at it and they, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, how could you dedicate that much space to the butchery? But really the butchery is what makes it special.
0: Mm-hmm. So you have your space. What about the product? How did you go about building relationships to get the product that you wanted?
1: Uh, trial and error, to be <laughs> br- brutally honest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we had this great internal debate when I first took over amongst myself our other butchers, the owners that are you know partners with me uh, and you know it was about bringing in what we call box beef. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we knew we wanted to uh, you know maintain our um, whole animal butchery and so that's a separate conversation from this but mm-hmm. this only again works in this world if you have whole animal butchery paired with box beef, quote unquote butchery mm-hmm. uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, whole animals are great. You know, you take in one eight, pound whole carcass of a, of a, a beef and, you know, a lot of grind, a couple of ribeyes, a couple of strips, a couple of fillets, um, you know, and, and the argument on the sort of uh, holistic side was to just do that one whole animal and then try and sell all the pieces of it. Problem is you get, you know, about seven to eight beef tenderloins out of, or beef or filet mignons out of one whole cow Mm -hmm. and that's our one of our number one selling skews so we were just leaving all this you know money on the table and so what we did is we went out and sourced boxes of beef that were very similar in in sort of our aesthetic and our our desired um quality range and and, um production ability uh and far you know the same kind of farmers that we like and supplement you know whole beef, tenderloins, ribeyes, strips, and, and, and butcher's cuts to the to the beef that we're buying because we have to. Because you know, at this point, we sell, I don't know, 30, 40 whole tenderloins a week, and we're only taking two off the animal that we bring in every week. So we we had to make that jump. Um, and we did, and we buy really expensive product, and we sell it for a, a low margin, and it's great. It's exactly what we needed to do to make the butchery work. Um, the flip side of that is the whole animal side, where... We had to, you know, we worked through a few different suppliers to really finally dial in the kind of whole animal that we needed to be bringing into the shop. And I mean, specifically beef and, and pigs here, uh, beef and pork, um, because there's a wondrous variety of, of, of beef and, and, and pork in the world, but it has to sort of work within the confines that we need it. So, you know, we in the beginning, we had pig farmers that were bringing us animals that were you know, whole carcass weights of 500 pounds. I mean, they're almost as big as the cows. And we learned really fast that, man, that pork tasted amazing, but we lost money on every single ounce of it that we sold because oh, wow. of the yield off of it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a 500-pound pig dressed, get a lot of fat, you know, get yeah. a great pork loin, a beautiful tenderloin. The hams are amazing. Mm-hmm. But because we bought it by the pound, we have some extraordinarily expensive lard <laughs> <We just can't laughs> any money off of um and you know if we were doing this for a pig roast great you know that, that, that that's beautiful but doing it to put in a you know the pork chops in a, in a in a retail case it didn't it didn't work at all um you know the sausage we were making out of we had had to sell over 20 bucks a pound and oh you know 20, 20 bucks a pound is just way too much to sell sausage for it's great yeah no sausage <laughs> yeah if you can if pound. you can swing it even, i'm sure now right right yeah.
0: Right. So what what in terms of production claims were you looking for? Did you require grass fed or, you know, no antibiotics ever? Or, you know, what what so what was your view about
1: that? I kind of refer to this as our aesthetic, you Mm -hmm. know, our, our our meat aesthetic, for lack of a better word. And what I found is that there's so many words that get thrown around in the modern era about meat, and and what it is, and the misunderstandings of that. And so, you know, let me try and simplify this as much as I possibly can. Um, we try, you know, hormone antibiotic free. That is that is one of our big markers. You know, that's a check in all the boxes. We really try and, and source animals that are hormone and antibiotic free. Um, the feed aspect of it is also uh, important, and then the genetic aspect of it is also really important, and the farming or the the ranching aspect of it so we try and deal with producers growers that you know really work hard to take care and love their animals and we find that naturally you know producers who take care and love their animals don't give them hormones and antibiotics you know willy-nilly now I mean there's certainly times when we've had some some ranchers that say to us especially beef producers like this, this particular steer that you're taking right now, when they were six months old, we had to give antibiotics to it because it was sick and going to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or, and you, you know and so we're taking it a year later and mm-hmm. the antibiotics are fully out of the system at that point. But it was important that that steer not not make it because of some mm-hmm. aesthetic. So we, we have a little bit of wiggle room there. Um, so the, the, the growers loving their animals and caring about them is a real natural um sort of segue into the kind of animals that we're trying to, 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 to support or, mm-hmm. and, and, and serve in the restaurant and the butcher shop. Um, and then the feed is also this thing that gets everybody all bent kind of out of, out of shape mm-hmm. um, and people get really hung up on the grass-fed thing.
0: Mm-hmm. The
1: problem with grass-fed is that grass-fed beef generally does not taste great. <laughs> it is, you know, you have a one in a million cow that tastes awesome. That's just been, you know, eating grass its whole life. But in order for a a beef to put on fat, which is what everybody wants out of beef, you know, you don't nobody wants a ribeye that doesn't have any white in it uh, Mm -hmm. because that's the fat, because that's the flavor. You know, it just the grass has a great flavor, but it doesn't have a great fat content. Mm -hmm. And so we we dabbled in the all grass-fed beef for a while and realized that from our end, you know, we could cut it really well. But when people took it home and cooked it, it was a disaster. Mm -hmm. because if you overcook all grass-fed beef by just a hair it -hmm. tastes like beef liver and people (laughs) generally don't like beef liver Mm -hmm. so if you've just paid 40 bucks a pound for a tenderloin that's all grass-fed grass finished take it home you cook it to midwell we get the blame as the butcher shop because our customer not knowingly has overcooked this expensive tenderloin and it doesn't taste good Mm -hmm. so we had to get out of that game and Mm -hmm. what we really strive for and and what we have in our in our main beef and pork producer right now is somebody who understands the way to make cows fatty and flavorful Mm -hmm. one of my biggest pet peeves is is all corn finished beef because it tastes like you know sugar-coated candy beef and we all joke about it in the shop now because we've been acclimated to this beef that you know and generally what we, what we are able to support are farmers and producers that are feeding some mix of grass, haylage uh, and grain to finish mm-hmm. their animals over a long period of time. It's very expensive to do this, uh, but it also produces the most flavorful and marbled beef that we can get. So mm-hmm. it's the mix of grass in the diet in the beginning and then the appropriate amount of grain mixed in with grass to finish that makes a big difference.
0: From meat and poultry to plant-based alternatives, DuraShield is proven effective at preventing antimicrobial spoilage. Add that to our extensive portfolio of taste and sensory solutions and colors, and you have a single source for innovating and elevating your products naturally. To learn more about how CalSec can make your products look better, taste better, and last longer, visit calsec.com podcast. So now you've you've got your space, you've got your product. What about the people? Um, what what did you need in terms of skill set? And um, you know how how what what qualities do you see as a good fit for the shop?
1: So I have three guys that work in the butcher shop and that have been there for I think six plus years now. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're the backbone of what, what happens on the production side of Main Street Meats. And, you know, I'm forever grateful to have them as part of the shop. Mm-hmm. Um, they are butchers. I am not a butcher. I could muddle my way through it if I needed to, you know, but I am a chef and, and a business owner and, and I understand this process, but I'm not the one on a daily basis breaking you know, whole animals. Um, so I, you know, these guys do a great job. Uh, so we have a, a head butcher, a charcutier, and a butcher shop manager that all work together in their various, um, avenues to make it work. Uh, and they produce, you know, a whole lot of product on a, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And it's a pretty amazing feat to see what they're able to do. Um, all of these guys are, um, ex cooks, chefs mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that, you know, ironically found this as a uh, maybe a, a way to stay involved in the in the food service business and practice a craft and hone a craft and develop, you know, themselves in a different way than being on the line or, or running a kitchen. Uh, they're all in their own rights, amazing chefs. They're some of the best cooks I've ever worked with and they're all butchers. And it's just, you know, it's almost happenstance or kismet that I, that I get to work with these guys on a daily basis who are so talented, who have decided that this is where they want to be at this part in their careers. Uh, It's pretty awesome. But, you know, if I were to to have to wave a magic wand and put this crew back together again, I don't know that I could do it. Um, Because it's a very special circumstance that kind of drew these three people together to make it work.
0: So you've got a lot of really great things, chemistry, product going on in your shop. How do you communicate that this is part of what elevates the eating experience of whatever product you're going to buy?
1: It's tough. Um, And and I I think we've all struggled with this over the years at the shop to kind of convey to people why the prices are what the prices are. Um, And I, I feel like, you know, it almost took me four or five years to sort of accept a way to, to talk to people about it. Um, Mm -hmm. but you know, what I generally say, you know, when somebody gives me a a, a little, you know, um, knowing glance, or, you know, if I'm, if I'm quoting a price for a a pound of whatever behind the case and they kind of go, Whoa. And I'll be like, look, you know, we bought this as a whole animal. We drove two hours to get it. We drove two hours back. We hung it up. We let it age. And then we cut it by hand. In this shop right here and yes the terrace is 13.99 a pound but there's only four pounds of it on each animal and we took it off a whole animal that we've lovingly cared for for the last week in here and generally they say oh okay um and then the the other thing i can generally say to people is you know we're a luxury shop i mean we you know Mm -hmm. this is you know we're dealing with a luxury item at this point Mm -hmm. you know there are it's like a a, a kind of, the only way I can compare this to is like, you know, a purse, like there are are like a bespoke item. Yeah. There are $10,000 purses that are handmade Mm -hmm. and there are, you know, $12 purses that you can carry your stuff in. And there's, it's the same thing in beef, you know, or in, 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 you know, the high-end butchery business that we're in, Mm -hmm. you know, we are definitely on the higher end of the scale, but you're paying for the craftsmanship that goes into it. If you just need to eat you know, a hamburger, yes, you can, you can eat one for a lot less money than, than we're able to sell it for somewhere else. But you're also not having the quality and the, and the craftsmanship that goes into it that we put into it.
0: And how do you communicate that this is an innovative approach today?
1: In the beginning, it was harder. So six, seven years ago, it was hard to explain what we were trying to do. And I will, I, I, you know, COVID has been an interesting experience for all of us. Mm-hmm but i think that covid in the in our butcher shop has been sort of, sort of a blessing in disguise in some mm-hmm. ways because you know when when you know we were usda inspected shop and when covid first hit we were you know we are essential, essential infrastructure so we were open you know we closed mm-hmm. for one day uh, and then it went in the shutdown and then reopened the shop immediately mm-hmm. and because we were buying whole animals at that point we had product in the case when a whole lot of grocery stores were out and a lot of people came to the shop, found what they needed because they were either trying to stuck up or, or, or find something to put on the table, experienced our product, and were like, wow, this is totally different than what I normally would buy. Mm-hmm. And for us, it's paid dividends in the long run because we were able to provide that really high quality product during a kind of a hard time for everybody that became nourishing. And it really changed the the general public's perception of what we did because we were there because the quality of the product was good because we didn't have to raise our prices because our our producers were not raising their prices to us Mm -hmm. it was it was great and it really helped sort of bridge the gap between you know understanding and not understanding why our butcher shop exists Mm -hmm. and and i'm grateful for that i would i would love to have done it without covid but i'm grateful for that to have been an end result of it
0: Mm -hmm. well something positive does have to come out of something so terrible so why not why not Talking to your customers about the product, are you needing to educate them
1: about prep? Absolutely. to properly prepare it? Absolutely. So we, you know, the most common question after somebody buys a steak or a pork chop or a piece of sausage, what do I do with it? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there's this natural reaction that our customers have, which is, I've just bought this really nice thing. I know I'm paying more money for it. How do I, how do, and, and in their mind, unfortunately, it's this like thought, like, how do I not mess this up? Right. So we try and turn that into a, how do I take care of this product? Um, and so, you know, this is the great thing that I get to say to people a, a lot is you just spend a lot of money on a really nice steak. You don't have to do anything to it other than mm-hmm. just cook it right. Salt, mm-hmm. pepper, that, you know, and that's it. And, you know, it's, there's sort of this amazement that you don't have to put, a rub or a, you know, a marinade or some special seasoning on, on the steak to make it taste good. And I tell them, no, you don't, you've just paid a ton of money for a really nice steak. All you got to do is cook it and, and, and season it with a little bit of salt. Honestly, that's, you know, you can throw pepper in there if you'd like, but that's it. And that sort of relaxes our guests at that point. And then we Mm -hmm. talk about how to cook it, you know, put it on the grill, put it in a cast iron pan, put it on a, you know, in the stove, in the broiler, however you want to do it, we can go through all the different methods, but it's not a secret the you've bought something really good we're mm-hmm. going to try and, and just take care of it mm-hmm.
0: so in addition to getting people to not freak out about messing up the meat have you have you seen maybe a more open mindedness towards what they want to cook i mean you know you're in tennessee i'm in kansas city and you know it's all about the barbecue right but what else are, are they figuring out? Are consumers figuring out that they can do with this, this special product?
1: Well here here we here we have the another you know positive side effect of COVID, which yeah. is that it, you know, a generation or, or a generation and a half of people who were not used to cooking at home mm-hmm. started cooking at home. Mm-hmm. And you know, it was it was kind of funny in the beginning because you know, the first month of COVID, all we sold were steaks. steak 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 you know everybody was grilling out at the house a steak 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 Um, and then occasionally a chicken right something like that and then about a month into it everybody was like man we have spent a giant amount of money on steaks but we still got to cook at home so maybe we should cook something that's not a steak from this butcher Mm -hmm. shop and then we started just going down this rabbit hole of everything else Mm -hmm. and it's been really fun to, to work with, you know, especially some of our re- regular customers on everything else, mm-hmm. you know, how do we make a, how do we make a pot roast? How do we, you know, make chili? How do we, you know, roast a, well, you know, a, a pork shoulder or, or something like that. And, you know, the, this awakening has, be, has kind of happened over the last two years where I think people are better cooks now than they used to be mm-hmm. uh, because they've been sort of forced to do it, but then they found something that they were missing which Mm -hmm. is cooking at home and and feeling satisfied by what you're able to prepare for yourself and for your your friends and family, which I think is super cool. It's -hmm. the reason I cook, Uh, but it just skipped a generation and a half of people who I think have now sort of become kind of reacquainted with it, which is cool. Mm -hmm.
0: So now that um, we're learning to live with COVID and things are still you know, trying to get back to normal and things are opening up, places are opening up, you know how are you making the the restaurant side of this work with the butcher shop side of it how how is that combination working for you
1: it's you know it was an interesting path um, because we you know like i said closed for a day butchery was running and then we f- flipped it to go only on the kitchen side for four five six months and then slowly reopened it with capacity restrictions we actually installed a patio covered patio that's heated, you know, in the wintertime mm-hmm. uh, outside because we could do it and we needed to do it because we needed that extra capacity so mm-hmm. that we could continue to do enough sales to make the restaurant part of it make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and through, you know, through trial and error, we, we've been able to, you know, slowly reopen more and more of the restaurant side. Um, and I feel very fortunate for having been able to do it the way we've done it. You know, we, we were panicked in the beginning as to what, you know, what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think, you know, now being, I'm not going to say we're on the other side, but we're, we're on the, the other side of the hill, maybe of, of mm-hmm. COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a better understanding of it. We, we know how to work with it. We have, we have vaccines. It's mm-hmm. great. You know, my entire crew at the at mainstream Gates is vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big part and a big part because we all, worked through the terrifying time of it mm-hmm. and we're ready to be vaccinated as soon as it's as soon <laughs> could because you know we we, we wanted it and mm-hmm. it, you know keeping our people safe keeping our guests safe has been a real primary concern of mine for a long time mm-hmm. uh, throughout this whole process and then you know second to that taking advantage of the opportunities that existed to expand our reach to grow mm-hmm. our client base to make people happy to feed them uh, has, has been great. Mm-hmm.
0: Are you finding some of those customers that you got in the butcher shop are now wanting to experience the restaurant side Absolutely. of it?
1: Absolutely. Yes. It, it, it is a, a slow burn. You know, there's this, there's this subset of people who are full bore eating in restaurants. Don't, doesn't matter. They want they want to be there no matter what. And then there's this other more kind of, hyper-local subset of people that, you know, have slowly sort of reintroduced themselves to dining. Um, and we're fortunate to have both of them because as a business, we need both of them to survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm very happy to have, you know, provided an environment that people felt safe in or safe enough in to come and eat with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, having outside dining was a big part of that. And also just the preventative measures that we did throughout the entire uh, pandemic have, have proved, you know, I think adequate, for what we were able to do in the moment to make people feel good about dining with us.
0: Mm-hmm. And so what role do you think the but the shop plays in the community? And why did you think Chattanooga needed a neighborhood butcher in the first place?
1: Um I'm an idealist, you know. And <laughs> it, 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 you know, from a culinary point of view. I felt like it was a really important piece of the dining scene that needed. It's a box that needed to be checked, uh, and checked well. Um, I feel like most, you know, mature dining scenes have this piece of the puzzle in some way, shape, or form. Either it's a great butcher and a separate charcutier, or a, a cheese shop, or you know, some sort of retail environment where you can purchase local and really great product Uh, and we didn't have that you know we had grocery stores uh, and and i don't think a grocery store fills this need in a dining scene so for me it was really important that this piece of the puzzle be there i wanted to be involved in it i wanted the challenge of it i'm glad you know in the end we did it i certainly take took my bumps and bruises along the way you know it's You know, running a butcher shop is kind of like having a boat. It's a real easy way to lose a lot of money real fast. (laughs) But in the end, we have persevered and figured out how to make it work.
0: (laughs) Maybe we should have titled the November issue of Meat and Poultry Magazine, the tech and time travel edition, because we've got a bit of both this month. Our November cover story written by Managing Editor Kimberly Klima, examines how the meat processing industry of today benefits from contributions made by meat processing equipment pioneers. Editor Joel Cruz and Features Editor Bob Sims bring us stories of sous vide in the meat processing industry, how it started and how it's going. Plus, Dr. Temple Grandin shares her industry insights from the corral, and our tools of the trade focuses on kill floor technologies. You'll find those stories and much more in the November issue of Meat and Poultry magazine. So what's... Ahead for, for Main Street Meats, what do you see, how do you see the company evolving in the next five years or 10 years? What's the plan?
1: In the immediate, you know, we have this very real and present uh, struggle to find the product that we need. Mm. So we, we have our whole animals, but finding the other box beef part of it is going to be hard for the next six to nine months. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to struggle through it and we're going to pay more money for it. And we're going to have to raise our prices uh, and be innovative with what we do in the butcher shop in order to make people happy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, I think that's a six to nine month out kind of short term thing that we're going to have to continue to muddle through. But we as an organization are good at doing that stuff. We've been nimble for the entire time we've been open and we can we can manage those um, supply chain shortages and so on and so forth. You know, in the longer term, uh, I would like to continue to grow main street. I'd like to continue to develop new items from the butcher shop, uh, especially on the prepared, uh, food prepared meat kind of side, you know, expanding options in salami charcuterie and, and, and sausages and things like that. You know, the, the value added products that we're able to create, um, pushing more to, towards, Retail, um, you know, how do we, you know, how do we sell more bacon? How do we sell more ham hocks? That kind of stuff. Uh, and then, you know, I would love, you know, in the long term, uh, I think there is a model where, uh, you know, the butcher shop that we have currently could support another one or two restaurants locally, you know, Main Street Meats clones that, you know, could be throughout the area or, or even, you know, quasi regionally, you know, I think there's a way to, to, to make that happen. I really like the format that we have. Um, but having, you know, a USDA inspected plant in each shop down the road is probably overkill when you have one that can supply the others, if they're within, you know, a quick driving distance.
0: I was about to say, do you, do you think you're going to have the energy for that? Because that's.
1: Yes. Um, you know, I'm, I I tell people all the time I'm in my mid forties, I'm in the meat of my career. It's time for me to do stuff. You know, I figured a couple of things out and I have a whole lot more things to figure out. Um, so I, I, you know, as you get older, you realize how little you actually know, which is one of the great, you know, realizations of life, I think. Um, but I want to take advantage of what I know and, and put it to good use for, for myself, for my family, for my crew, for everybody involved.
0: Well, I certainly wish you the best of luck. It sounds like, you know, you're very happy and you're running a great operation. So, and congratulations to you for making it to the other side of the COVID hill.
1: Well, I appreciate that. I, I, I you know, there will be a reckoning for all of us who work through it like this. Some day in the near future, <laughs> we'll all figure out what happened to us. But in the in, in the now, I think we're doing great. I'm really happy for it.
0: That's the show for this week. Tune in next week for another episode of the Meat and Poultry podcast. You can find the Meat and Poultry podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to your favorite programs. While you're there, give us a like and subscribe as it helps to support the channel. And be sure to stay social with us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram by searching at Meat Poultry. I'm Erica Schaefer. Thanks for listening.